Amen. We're going to take your seats. And good morning and welcome. And uh, let me invite you to go and grab your Bibles and start making your way to Genesis 16. Uh, Genesis 16 is where we're going to be this morning. And as you start making your way uh, toward Genesis 16, I want to begin our time by asking uh, this question. Uh, Have you ever attempted, any time in your life where you've attempted a shortcut that in the end was costlier? You ever been there? Okay, some of you are raising your hand, nodding your heads. We've all been there. Uh, We've all attempted a shortcut that in the end has cost us more. And so, right, we think, I can save some time, I can save some money, I can save some energy, but the end result is that it's costlier, or it takes longer, or there's relational capital, whatever the case is, that shortcut ends up being anything but a shortcut. Now, um, as I was thinking about that this week, I was actually shocked at how many times in my life I realized, oh, I could share all kinds of different stories. Apparently, I haven't learned my lesson uh, in terms of, uh, of shortcuts. But what, what stands above uh, all other uh, events in my life, I was eight years old. I was in third grade. And uh, for, for years, I had asked my parents, really begged my parents to let me ride my bike or walk uh, to where I went to elementary school, uh, which my parents promptly said no because the only road that went to my elementary school from our neighborhood was on a busy highway. Uh, so no surprise that my parents said no. But there was this pathway, this trail that, that had cut through uh, the woods uh, connecting the neighborhood my school was in and the neighborhood where I grew up. Um, and so even putting that in front of my parents, they still promptly said, no, uh, you're not going. But there was this one particular day. In fact, I remember the exact day. It was September 20th, 1989. And the reason I know that exact day is because it was on that day that my youngest brother was born. And so in my eight-year-old mind, I knew, well, mom's busy, dad will be at the hospital. Uh, And here was really the clincher. I had some friends that had told me about a shortcut to get to the trail itself. So in my eight-year-old mind, I had calculated all. Even if it goes a little longer than I think, mom and dad aren't going to be home to figure out that it took a little bit longer uh, to make my way home. Well, what I did not account for was A, getting lost in the neighborhood, getting to the trail. Uh, B, I didn't account for the fact uh, that my eight-year-old legs just don't move as fast as a vehicle. And C, I most definitely did not account for the fact that my older sister was going to be happy to wrap me out to my parents the moment I didn't show up when the bus drove by. Suffice to say, that shortcut cost me dearly. It co- I'm still alive, but it cost me dearly. And I say that because the text that we come to in Genesis 16 looks at Abram and Sarai and their attempt to shortcut or exp- expedite God's promises, which will only serve to create problems and conflicts that still exist even today. And so here's where God's Word is going to lead us this morning, this idea right here. There are no shortcuts to God's promises. Therefore, we are to live in patient faith in Him. Let me say that again. There are no shortcuts to God's promises. Therefore, we are to live in patient faith in Him. So look at your Bibles. Uh, I'm going to read all of chapter 16 uh, here at the outset, uh, and then we'll pray and walk our way through this text. But loved ones, this is the word of the Lord. It says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. 
And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Herai, uh, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, truly you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer, Lahai, Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord, and it will stand for all of time. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you, God, for your word. God, we're thankful for the ways that your word is going to do your work. And God, we even pray now in these coming moments that, that your spirit would have the freedom to work and move in and amongst your people. God, to challenge, exhort, uh, remind, encourage, convict, whatever it is that we need. God, we're asking that you would do and accomplish uh, for your glory here this morning. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, God, we're praying for Pastor Stephen Baum and for First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque, that you'd be at work in them, uh, enabling them to trust uh, you and to love you uh, in every facet of their life in the same way that we endeavor to do the same. And so, God, would you come now? Would you have your way? Would you accomplish your purposes in and through your people? Uh, we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Shortcutting Faith, Shortcutting Faith, uh, which, full disclosure, I straight up stole that from Kent Hughes in his commentary uh, because that absolutely nails what's going on here in chapter 16. And again, this main idea that there are no shortcuts to God's promises. Uh, so therefore, we're to live in patient faith in Him. Now, when we look at chapter 16, there's really two distinct sections uh, maybe you could even say two scenes, that in each of the scenes focus on an interaction between two characters. So in verses 1 through 6, we see this interaction that exists between Abram and Sarai, uh, and then in chapter, or sorry, verses 1 through 6, and then in verses 1 through, or 7 through 16, uh, we see an interaction that's going to unfold between Hagar uh, and the angel of the Lord. Uh, so that's really how we're going to spend our time is walking through these two scenes and the interactions of these two, uh, of the two respective characters in each scene. So when we think about shortcutting faith, let's begin with this idea. Look at verses 1 through 6. And really the shortcut to faith is simply put, it's this, it's failing to believe God's word. The shortcut to faith is a failure to believe God's word. Now let me just bottom line this right out of the gate. Let me just bottom line this right here for us. 
There is always going to be thoughts and ideas on, on how to live your best life and to have the most effective life and to get what you want out of life. But, but here it is. Any idea, any thought, any way that takes you outside or beyond the confines of God's word is a shortcut that will ultimately fail you. That's what's in front of us in the text. You can bet on it, loved ones. It's going to fail you. And, and part of what makes chapter 16 so egregious is it comes right on the heels of chapter 15. Right in chapter 15, where, where Abram believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness, and then immediately we're into this nonsense with this scheme and this plan that unfolds in front of us. So as we look at this failing to believe God's word, I, I want to make two uh, distinct notes with respect to what's going on in verses 1 through 6 that really, in a lot of ways, are cautions for you and I in our life to ensure that we're not falling prey to this same trap. Uh, here's the first, look at verse 1 and 2. It's the temptation to scheme our own shortcut to God's promises. The temptation to scheme our shortcut to God's promises. Look at what it says. Verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Right. So again, this, this, this issue of her barrenness. So, and, and then we're told she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so you can see Sarai, frustrated by God's timing, frustrated by the process, frustrated by her perception of God failing to answer his promise, she, she cooks up her own scheme. Right? She, she looks at Hagar, who they likely picked up back in chapter 12, when, when uh, Sarai and Abram went down to Egypt uh, in their, one of their previous episodes where they failed to trust the Lord, right? And so they picked her up, uh, and, and Sarai's looking at her as a potential surrogate. It's like, ha, ah, maybe this is the pathway for me to get what I want. And then uh, Sarai says, and that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, we, we've, we've seen hints and notes of this all the way back to the end of chapter 11 around Sarai's barrenness. But, but here is really for the first time where, where, where the bitterness and the pain and, and the sharpness of this uh, becomes far more obvious and begins to play itself into the narrative. But, it, but as we think about Sarai, here's one of the things that, that should be noted at this moment, is that Sarai is viewing the promises of God from her present circumstance and situation, not through the ultimate faithfulness of God. And loved ones, that, that's a great reminder for all of us that what you see in front of yourself, what, what you see right in front of you today may not, in fact, it often is the case, is not the final word from God. But Sarai is treating her, her, her present situation in that moment as the final word from God, which is why she's operating the way that she operates. And so her scheme, right, here's her scheme. She goes to her husband and she says, you know what? Hey, I've got an idea. Uh, here's how I'm going to obtain a child. You're, you're going to go into Hagar. Now, does, does anyone else read this and just go, uh, wait, what? Did you for real just suggest what I thought you suggested? I mean, here we are, right, loved ones? We're, we're just working our way through the Bible and an episode of Jerry Springer just, just popped out in front of us, right? I mean, this just got really weird really quick. It's like, what's going on? And yet, here, here's what you have to understand, right? Because there are some, some, some cultural uh, elements that, that, that are uh, instructive here. First of all, uh, when we think culturally, this is true really of any society, but particularly um, in, in ancient society, that barrenness was a tragic curse. It was a tragic curse. 
Uh, it, it was profoundly linked to, to people's core and to their identity. Now, there were practical implications. Right? If you live in an agrarian society, having more kids helped you to get the work done so that you could sustain life. But far beyond just the practical implications was, was core to their being, was the ability to preserve their family line. And so, so, so even though in our society, may, maybe this isn't as sharp as a whole in our society, the, the reality is I, I couldn't think of a single society ever where barrenness is viewed positively. No place. Could, 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 I, could I arrive at any place where people looked at this positively? And so, so it's not lost on us. In fact, some of you, some of you know all too well the angst and the pain and the disappointment and the frustration that comes from barrenness. And so it's not lost on us. But that wasn't the only contextual element. Uh, Here's another factor to this is that barrenness was grounds for divorce. Not biblical grounds for divorce, but you, you find in some of these ancient writings, not biblical writings, but other ancient writings, that, that, that if a woman was barren for a certain length of time, it was a legitimate reason for a man to get a divorce. And so what you see Sarai suggesting and ultimately employing here uh, was actually quite common in the ancient world, and, and really it was, it was kind of a last-ditch effort for this woman uh, who may have been staring down the, the, the prospect of divorce to prevent herself from being single and destitute. And it's worth noting, let me, let me just say this here, uh, that just because the Bible describes something, right, it is describing a situation, that does not mean that the Bible condones or approves of this. Do not read this and go, oh, polygamy is acceptable. It's not. This is a massive violation and completely undermines uh, what we see going on in Genesis 1 and 2 and God's good design. It's not permission, right? It's just describing what the, the, the characters in the Bible do. The reality is what, what's really happening is the Bible doesn't airbrush or whitewash the figures. The Bible just presents them with all their flaws and shortcomings. But this in no way, shape, or form legitimizes or, or makes this practice uh, acceptable. And so when you think about this, right, this temptation to scheme our own shortcut, here's the word for us. And the word is this, that the temptation to shortcut or to circumvent God's process to God's promise is never going to work out in the end. It's, it's not going to work. I, I'm just telling you right now, I can save you the trouble. Don't do it. It's not going to work. Because, loved ones, you and I, we don't know better than God. We don't have better plans. We don't have better ideas than God. Further, we don't know all that God is doing at any given moment. Right? The thing that you might find so frustrating and difficult today might be the very process that God's going to bring to fruition or into bloom tomorrow. But you and I don't know all that. So you've got to be very, very careful. Be very careful that you are not attempting to shortcut what God intends to do in your life. In fact, as you think about that, just ask yourself this. In your life, in your life, is there any area, any, any avenue, any prospect that you are eyeing, that you are considering, that you are pursuing, uh, th- th- this, this form of, uh, of shortcutting or expediting something, that if you're just being honest with yourself, it's just a shortcut. Right? Any, any relationship, any professional pursuit, any educational desire, any ministry plan, where you're really just trying to take things into your own hands to accelerate God's purposes, plans, or promises. And if there is, don't do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. In fact, Jesus gives us wisdom on this in the Gospels. 
right? When you think about Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness, right? Matthew 4, Luke 4, you go to either of those places. But, but do you remember Jesus and his temptation? The, 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 the first one, it's kind of an odd, or, or, or the last one of the three is kind of an odd uh, temptation because here's what Satan says to him. He says to Jesus, I'll give you the glory of all these kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship me. And, and you read that and you're kind of like, aren't they already his? And you, you, have, to, you have to put it in context, right? Because the, the glory of all the kingdoms comes to Christ after he's victorious, right, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so here's what Satan's proposing in that moment. Satan is proposing a shortcut to glory. He's saying, Jesus, Jesus, you don't have to suffer. You, you can go right to glory. And, and here's the way you do it. You just have to worship me. Of course, Jesus isn't interested in that. Right? He knows, right? He knows. No, no, no. Suffering, suffering comes before the glory. And so, loved one, right, do not attempt, do not attempt to shortcut God's promises. Oh, God, help us. We live in patient faith. Sarah, Sarai and Abram, they, they, they foster these devastating results because they attempt to run ahead of God's promises. Do not let that be us. So we see this temptation, a scheme, our shortcut to God's promise, right? It's a failure to believe God's word. Notice this. Secondly, look at the end of verse 2 and following. We see the danger of replacing God's voice with another voice. This is the danger of replacing God's voice with another voice. Look at the end of verse 2. This is one of the most jarring lines in all of the Abram and Abraham account in all of Genesis. It says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And it, it maybe seems innocuous, maybe it seems inconsequential, but, but it's not, and it has to be read with chapter 15 in view. Because when you go back to chapter 15, right, God had a word for Abram, and it was a clear word. It was a very clear word. Here's what's going to happen. Here's the promise. Here's what you can expect. God said nothing of Hagar. He didn't say anything about Hagar. Right? And so, so Abram, in this moment, if Abram's leading his wife well, he's going he's to respond to that by saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what God said. At a minimum, at a minimum, there should have been this sense of, that's not what I heard. I need to go back to the Lord and see if that's what he meant. Maybe I misunderstood and that was his plan, but we should at least go back. But there's none of that. There's just this passive acquiescence from Abram, which, okay, one other note that I got, man, I can see how this could go sideways this afternoon. You go home, you start having a conversation. So let me just make sure we get this out here. Uh, Men, this passage is not saying you don't have to listen to your wife, Okay. That's not what it's saying. That's actually dumb, right? You want to listen to your wife, okay? That's, that's, that's not it. So don't go home and go, well, honey, you know what we saw today is Abram was dumb. No, that's not it, okay? Here's the issue. Here is the issue. The issue is that Abram listened to the voice of his wife to the exclusion of the voice of God. He listened to her instead of listening to the voice of God. Haven't we we seen something like this in Genesis already? Uh, we've been here before, right? It's like deja vu all over again. You've got a passive husband who fails to believe and to declare what God had already said. You have a deluded wife who, who is not speaking God's word, but another word and acting out against God's word. This, loved ones, is a recapitulation of Genesis 3. 
It, this is Genesis 3 all over again. In the same way that, that, that God's voice was replaced by the voice of the serpent, now a God's voice is being replaced here by Sarah. Right now, Abram, like Adam, what they should have said in those moments is, whoa, 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 that, that's not what God said. Had that line simply been uttered, the entirety of this account plays out massively different. That's not what they do. Right? They didn't return to the clear spoken word of God. They replaced the voice of God. And notice, I mean, just notice the different devastating results that comes from this. Starting in verse 3, it says this, So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. I mean, does anyone read that and go, yeah, I think that's going to work out? No one thinks like that. You're like, this is a disaster waiting to happen. You can already see the train coming off the tracks. This is going to be bad. So no surprise, verse 4, when he went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. She's like, oh, you want to exploit me and use me? Guess what? I'm pregnant. You're not. All kinds of strife breaks out. Verse 5, this line does crack me up. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Like, wait, 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 well, hold on. This was your idea. Now, Abram's at fault for going along with it. But it's like, whoa, hold on. This, this was your idea. Sarai goes on, I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram, just continuing in this passivity, he doesn't really want anything to do with this. Right? He's like, oh, behold, the servants in your power do to, you, do, do to her as you please. Which Sarai uses as leverage and latitude to mistreat Hagar, so Hagar eventually flees. It's all kinds of devastation that ensues almost immediately. You have the, the relational discord and strife. You've, you've got the mistreatment and exploitment of Hagar. I mean, she, she's entirely used. And then you've got this chaos, this, this, this completely unsettled sense that now characterizes this home. Now listen, listen. It's in submission to God's word where there is peace and stability in our lives. Did you hear that? It's in a submission to God's word where there's peace and stability in our lives. Right? When our eyes are fixed on God and his truth, that's where you and I are kept in perfect peace. That's what Isaiah says. Right? You keep him in perfect peace whose eyes and whose mind is fixed on you. It's when we're fixed on the Lord. That's where there's peace and yet Abram and Sarai, they, they trade it all in because they think they got a shortcut. We, we can get there sooner if we do this. The failure to believe God's word. Now, as we think about all this, I, I think there's some questions that, that we need to pose to ourselves before we move on. So let me just linger here for a moment. Let me pose a few questions for us before we get to the second section. Um, and, and really just consider and reflect. Right? In your life, are these, is this true of me? Or, or, or how would I respond to this? So I've, I've got four of them. Here they are. Number one, am I orienti orienting my life around God's word or attempting to orient God's word around my life? That, that's really the million-dollar question. Who dictates who? Who drives who? Right? Do, do I come to God's word? When I think about any decision, any, any activity, any action in my life, do I come to God's word and I'm trying to kind of massage it so I can make it say what I want it to say? Or do I come to God's word and it gets to dictate and drive how I live my life? Secondly, am I believing all that God says or only what I like or understand? 
See, the danger of replacing the voice of God is to think that you have the freedom to replace the voice of God. You don't have that freedom. You, you don't have that right. You don't get to do that. And for Sarah, she gets herself into trouble because she, she doesn't believe all that God says, but she thinks she can circumvent it. She just takes matters into her own hands. Are we believing all that God says? Thirdly, am I patiently waiting under the authority of God's word? Am I patiently waiting under the authority of God's word? See, Sarai's timeline was different than God's timeline. But listen, 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 loved ones. If you and I are going to orient our life to God's word, that includes orienting our life to God's timeline. That God gets to dictate when things happen, not you and I. And then finally this. Am I entirely yielded to God's word? Am I submitted to all that God says? Right, the, the, the hard stuff, the confusing parts, the confront of elements of, uh, where it confronts elements of sin in my life, am I yielded to all of that? Loved one, do not let a failure to believe God's word lead you to shortcuts in your life. It will cost you. It will cost you severely. It's not worth it. Don't do it. And not only is it going to cost you, what we actually see at the back half of this is it has great consequences for others as well, right? So notice, starting in verse 7, the, the, the narrative fixes its attention now on Hagar and another figure who joins her in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord. But what we see here, this is, this is God's gracious intervention. And so in spite of this shortcut of faith that really does exploit and expose Hagar, God graciously intervenes on her behalf. Um, and, and so as she flees... Right, God comes to her, and, and this wasn't her plan, and yet God is graciously intervening on her behalf. So look at what it says, starting, starting in verse 7. It says, the angel of the Lord. Okay, we've got to stop right there. Who is the angel of the Lord? Right, We've we, we got we to answer that question here, um, and let's just back up for a moment, because that's a name that we see all over the Old Testament. Sometimes when we see that name, it's very clearly a reference to the Lord. Other times when we see that name, it's very clearly not a reference to the Lord. So it can get confusing because you have the same name, the same title, that clearly is designated on different individuals. So it could be an angel. It could be the pre-incarnate Christ. It could be God. And what that means from passage to passage in the Old Testament is largely dictated by what you see contextually going on. Well, when we look here in Genesis 16, it's actually not hard to figure out who this is. Because the, the, this figure, right, the angel of the Lord in this account, is going to speak in the first person as God. The angel of the Lord is going to say things that only God can say. Uh, and further, uh, both Hagar in her speech and Moses as he writes the book of Genesis is going to refer to the angel of the Lord as God. Hence why we're saying this is God's gracious intervention because we believe, or I believe, that the angel of the Lord here is a reference to God. Uh, and so with that, notice a few things about God's gracious intervention. First of all, look at verse 7. We see God's intentional pursuit. God's intentional pursuit. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. So can you see, can you see Hagar, this single pregnant woman in the wilderness, <laughs> wondering, man, what, what do I do and where do I go now? And God himself comes and meets her. He is intentionally pursuing her. And as you think about that, don't forget this. 
Hagar is not tied to God's promise. God owes nothing to her. There's no covenant stipulation. There's no obligation. So God's not like, oh, made this promise, so I got to go meet with Hagar for a little bit and help her out. No, 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 no. There's none of that. God God owes her nothing. See, this is what God does. He graciously intervenes. And in the same way that God graciously intervened for her is the same way that he graciously intervenes for you and I. That God is pursuing us. Right? The, Hagar's life is completely upended, and yet it's the Lord who's seeking her. She's not seeking the Lord. It's God who's seeking her. And don't forget, that's exactly, loved ones, that is exactly what God has done for you and I. Because here was our situation. Ephesians 2 tells us that you and I were dead in our sin. Now, think about that word, dead. Not, not like kind of dead. Not deep in sleep. No, you're dead. You know what dead people do? What do they do? Tell me. They don't do anything. They're just dead, right? So they're certainly not seeking for the Lord. And yet what God tells us in Ephesians 2 is that the Lord is initiating and he's pursuing. He's coming after his people. In fact, this is maybe best illustrated in the Bible itself, in the Gospel of John. So in John chapter 9, there's that great account where Jesus heals the blind man. You remember that? And, uh, And so when he heals him, the blind man ends up having this interaction with the religious leaders. And the religious leaders want the blind man to admit that Jesus was a sinner. And of course, you, that's where you get that great line. He's like, listen, I, I, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. Here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. And they keep pressing him. And he's like, wait, do, do you want to become one of his disciples? Like, I, I don't understand why you keep asking me this question. At which point the religious leaders turn and they mock him and they ridicule him and they actually kick him out of the temple. So here was a guy who was prevented from worship because of his infirmity and now has been kicked out of the temple because of the religious leaders. And you're like, man, what a horrible plight for this guy. And yet one of the, the, the most powerful lines, I think, in all of the New Testament is in John 9, 35. It says this, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. So news comes back to Jesus. Hey, they kicked him out. And Jesus is like, all right, I'm gonna go find, right? And so you can just see him. He's like, oh, there he is, right? There's Jesus pursuing that guy. That, that, that's akin to what's going on here with Hagar in the wilderness. It's also akin to what God does with you and I. He is pursuing us. It's awesome, isn't it? You weren't looking for God, but man, he came running after you. And maybe for some of you, maybe for some of you, when you hear this, right, you, 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 you're, you're, you recognize and you realize this is foreign to me because you, you've never trusted in Christ. You've never given your life to him. So so what you need to know is that even right now, even though you have not sought for God, God has been seeking for you. That God has been pursuing you. That God has been chasing you. He's inviting you to repent and to trust in him. He is willing to meet with you even right now, even though you have not sought him out. See, loved ones, that's the hope of the gospel. That even when you and I were not looking for the Lord, he was coming after us so that we could be reconciled and restored to him. It's the pursuit of God. In fact, for all of us, right, for all of us, we would do well to just ponder, to reflect, to consider on the different ways that God has pursued us. Where were you when God rescued you from certain and deserved wrath? Here's what I know was not the case. You were not killing it. You were not acing it. You desperately needed a Savior. Further, when you think about this, like where else has God been pursuing you? Where else has God met you in a desperate, exposed, vulnerable place? 
This is God's intentional pursuit. And then what we see on the heels of that is not only his pursuit, but notice also God's personal interaction. Because starting in verse 8, God here begins to personally interact with Hagar. In fact, this, this, this next section, verses 8 through 12, is framed by a series of statements, right, where, where the angel of the Lord says to her, back to a number of things, but again, let me just remind you, she's, she's not owed any of this. Right? This is all part of God's kindness, that he's graciously caring for her. Notice a few things. First of all, in verse 9, we see God's command. God's command. The angel of the Lord said to her, it's the first of three times we see that statement. Here's his statement, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, now on the heels of that, back in chapter 8, the angel of the Lord had come to her and he said, hey, you know, wh- where have you come from and where are you going? And that's not the angel of the Lord like, hey, I'm kind of confused. I need some context. No, he's drawing her out. Starting in verse 9, dealing with the issue in, in, in her heart, and he tells her, you're going to return and you're going to submit. See, just make note of this, loved ones. God's not afraid to call his people into messy and difficult situations. So often we think, oh no, God wants to call me out of that. No, God's not afraid to call you into that. God is not afraid to call his people into messy and difficult situations. Right? And not, not only that, but, but God is very comfortable with, with authority structures that he intends us to live in. Further, and don't miss this, the promise of blessing was bestowed on Abram. For, for Hagar to step outside of this is to step outside of God's promised blessing. So here's what God's doing in this moment. God is calling Hagar back to blessing through obedience to his command. Which, by the way, is the exact same way you and I are saved. It's obedience to God's command to put your faith in Jesus. Right? That's how we're saved. That's the promise. That's where the blessing comes. It's identical to the gospel. And so don't miss, don't miss what this means for Hagar. Here's what it means. It means that life for her is going to be complicated and messy. That's what this means. God's commanding her to live in that because ultimately it's going to be what's best for her. And so here's here's the connection for us. We go a number of ways. Let Let me just do this. Here's how this plays out in your life and in my life. It's that living in the community of believers, that living in the church, spending your life around other believers, it's going to be messy and it's going to be complicated. I promise. I promise. You know why? Because it's a group of sinners sharing life with each other. That's why. And so do not, do not, do not forsake the blessing of community, of God's community, at the expense of attempting to minimize the messy. Right? God calls us, right? He's, he's calling her back to live in the household of promise. And even with its messiness, it's better than to live outside of it. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I have the conversation of people who would profess to be believers, but they are not connected to any church. Whether I have the, connect, the, the conversation with them or whether I hear about it from other people. Live in a society that's rife of people who want to profess faith in Jesus, but they want nothing to do with this bride. You know what I've never heard? You know what I've never heard in any of those conversations? I've never heard anyone say how great it is. No one's ever like, it's so great to love Jesus and be completely isolated from his community. This is fantastic. I've never heard that. 
Because you and I have always been intended to live in community. Because no one can say that. It's not great. They're missing out. See, for us, we got to be willing to live in the messy. we got to be willing to live in the complicated. we got to be willing to, like, ah, man, we're a bunch of sinners. We're not going to do this all right. Do not forsake the promise of God's community or the blessing of God's community at the expense of attempting to minimize the messy. It's not worth it. So God gives this command. You're going to return and you're going to submit. Look at verse 10. There's the second thing God says. God gives this promise. This is God's promise. He says, the angel of the Lord said to her, right, that second statement, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Keep in mind, again, God owes her nothing. And God's like, man, you're going to have all kinds of offspring. This is pure grace from God, and it is a statement of the excessive generosity of God. And then we see the beginning of that promise begin to unfold in verse 11 and 12, and this is God's prophecy. Here God is going to tell her about the child that she's pregnant with. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're pregnant, and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so in this prophecy, God tells Hagar a few things, right? There's some, some insight here. First of all, you know, she, she lived at a time, you didn't have ultrasounds. It's not like, hey, here's your 20-week ultrasound, you're having a boy. She's like, oh, I'm having a boy. That's good to know. And you're going to name him Ishmael. She's like, okay, I got the name. And, and then God, God says some things that she probably wasn't thrilled to hear, right? Because the third thing, he, he talks about Ishmael's character. Look at verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. That's not a compliment. If you were like, oh, that's, what, what is that? I, I think we all know what that means. He's going to live this ruggedly individualistic, solitary, nomadic life. And his future, you see, at the end of verse 12, is going to be characterized by conflict. So God's prophecy, it's not all peaches and cream here. And yet notice, right, when you look at this, notice there, there's no mention of the promise to Abram. In fact, r- really what this is, this is a shadowy parody of what God is going to do through Abram and, and Abram's legitimate offspring. Ishmael will also have 12 princes or 12 tribes. Ishmael will also live in a land. And so on the surface, they'll actually look very similar, except he won't live in the promised land. He'll live outside the promised land. And none of his descendants are going to do anything to remedy the plight of humanity or to reconcile or save us. It's only through Abram's legitimate offspring with Sarah, Isaac, uh, that will culminate in Jesus, that will rescue humanity. And really what you have here, you have the culmination that once again demonstrates that the shortcut taken by Abram and Sarai has done nothing to produce or to accelerate the promise. What it's, what, what it's served to do is it has led people into a place where they're going to be at odds with each other for the, for, for the next number of millennia because the shortcut is never worth it. And yet, even in that difficult word that comes to Hagar, there is also a tremendous word of grace. Look at what he says right in the, the middle of verse 11. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. In fact, even the name Ishmael speaks to this. Ishmael means God has heard. Which both of these 
little nuggets inform Hagar's response. That's what we see in verse 13 and 14. It's a response of delight in the Lord. So, so here's how Hagar responds to this, this, this word from God. It says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are God, you are the God, a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bereth. See, the, 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 the surprise of Hagar is that she actually says nothing about her son. The only thing she talks about here is the Lord. That, that, that's the object, that's the attention, that's the affection of her delight. And when you think about her response, let me just note two items for us here and we're done. Here's the first. When you look at verse 13 and 14, that we delight in the God who sees. We delight in the God who sees. Right? She knows God sees her. In fact, so strong is her conviction that God sees her. That's what she literally names the place. So, so not obvious to us on the surface, but that, that, that place name, Beer Laha Roy, it, what it literally means is the living one who sees me. She's saying, God, I know that you see me. And there's incredible comfort and there's incredible delight for her in knowing that God sees her. Love, let me just double down for all of us here that that's true for you and I as well. This is not reserved solely for Hagar. Right? She's not the only one that God sees. Right? God, God, God sees us. God sees you. Do you know that? That God sees you? In fact, here, let me prove it to you. Flip over real quick to Hebrews chapter 6. Real quick. Hebrews 6. Make a big biblical argument for this here. I'm just going to read verse 10. It says this, For God is not unjust so as to overlook, or you could say fail to see, your work and the love that you have shown for his name, in serving the saints as you still do. See, God sees us. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. God sees you. In fact, he gives us different, different aspects to how God sees us. First of all, God, God sees your work. You ever worked really hard and it goes unnoticed? Like you, you, you devote yourself to something and, and, and your spouse or your, your boss or your coach or your teacher or your, 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 your children or your parents, they don't see it? Not with God. God sees your work. Now, you, you might not be recognized. You might not be praised in this life, but you can have confidence knowing God sees your work. But that's not the only thing that God sees. Notice what it also says. It says God sees the love that you have shown for his name. Why God sees our love for him. Here's what's striking about this. God will forget. God will forget all of our sin through the shed blood of Jesus. But God will see every act of affection and adoration and praise that is expressed to him. And then thirdly, in verse 10, we see that God sees our service. God sees our service. He sees the way that we serve others. And so you, like Hagar, can rest in the fact that even if everyone else misses it, God sees it. And so loved one, no, 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 that God sees you. God sees you. He sees where you're at. He knows what you need, which is why we see this second item here, that we delight in the God who looks after us. We delight in the God who looks after us. Look, Verse 13, what Hagar says, she says, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. See, Hagar is able to attribute God's care to herself in this moment. She's like, no, you're, you're the one who sees me. You're the one who cares for me. You're the one who sustains me. You're the one who's watching over me. Do you know that God's watching over you? Do you know that God's sustaining you? Do you know that God's preserving you? Do you know that God's keeping you? Do you know that God's holding you? Do you know that? Because he is. 
Will you choose to delight in knowing that God is looking after you? Will you choose to trust his care, that he looks after us even when you don't know it? Just this past week, I was dropping Ellie. Ellie's my five-year-old kindergartner off at school. And so the school is close to our house. We walk. So I walked her up to the gate, gave her a hug, said goodbye, and she probably took about 10 steps. I was waiting for her to actually walk into the gate, and she stopped right before the gate, and she turned around, and she looked at me, and she said, Daddy, one more hug. And I was like, no, no, I'm just kidding. I would never do that. <laughs> I was like, of course, right? You know, so I, I, I get down, and I get down to hug her, and as I'm getting down to hug her, she says, will you pray for me? And I was like, absolutely. Right, so there we are, right at the gate, you know, all these kids all around. I'm just praying for my daughter, and, and so she walks off, and I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm just stunned by the whole thing, and I'm just kind of standing there watching her for a minute, but what, what I was struck by outside the fact that no other kid did that, and I was like, take that, all you other moms and dads, my daughter came back, <laughs> right, but what, what I was struck by was this little girl who had such a security and a confidence in her dad, she didn't care about anything else that was going on around her, she didn't care at all. And I say that, loved ones, because you and I have a heavenly father who is infinitely better, infinitely better, who sees us, who knows us, who's watching over us. Oh, God, help us. Would we live in the fullness of that? Let us respond in delight to the Lord, knowing that God sees and God is looking after us. And so the passage closes, verse 15 and 16. We get, this is really, it, it's, a, it's a very cold um, clinical epilogue to the account, and it says this, and Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Did you notice anyone who wasn't mentioned in that? Yeah, there's no Sarai. It was her idea. It was her idea for a son, and yet three times we're told that it's Hagar's son. The shortcut did not aid, it did not assist, it did not accelerate God's promise, it only served to complicate it. And so, loved one, are there areas in your life where you're looking to shortcut God's promises? Are there areas in your life you want to shortcut the processes of God? Right? You, you want the maturity without the struggle. You want the platform without the, the, the humbling and refining events that make you ready for it. Right? Do you want the resources Without the perspective to steward them in a godly fashion. No, no, there are no shortcuts to God's promises. Therefore, God help us. Let us be people who will live in patient faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to see the foolishness, the emptiness, and the complete inability of any shortcut ever achieve to produce or accelerate your promise. Father, forgive us for ways that we're scheming, tempted, desirous of wanting to take shortcuts. God, we ask that you'd help us to live in patient faith, to trust, to trust your faithfulness, to trust you're going to do what you've said you're going to do, even when we don't see it in the moment. God, we thank you that we can trust your word. We pray you'd help us to believe your word, to trust your faithfulness over all things. And God, would you help us to see and to know with confidence that no shortcut is ever worth it. We pray this in your name. Amen.